Well, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 4? We'll be taking a look at a few verses in the fourth chapter of that great letter, uh, looking at verses 13 through 17. Uh, I'm John Sackett, uh, Air Force Chaplain at Vance Air Force Base, uh, also the father of a couple members here and students at OSU. So we've uh, enjoyed worshiping here, and Ryan asked me if I would preach, and I I love to say yes to that. So uh, here we are, James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. This is the word of God. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Would you pray with me? Father, as my words are true to your word, may they be taken to heart. But if my words should stray from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. I pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus Christ. Amen. So are there any unopened gifts left under the tree? Is there anything you were hoping to get that you didn't receive? Really, don't, don't raise your hands. It might be embarrassing for your loved ones if they're around. So. I, I remember as a kid when the last gift was open or gathered, given out, ripped open, a pause would settle over our family. We would each look at each other with a mixture of both contentment and a real desire to keep Christmas going. And then my father would say something like, is that it? all the gifts given? And he would voice, hmm, as he walked up to the tree and peered under it. And then he would say, wait, what's this? And plunge his hand deep into the tree. Sometimes he would pull out a bit of jewelry for mom, or sometimes it would be a slip of paper that would say something like, look in the shed, or look in my study. And we would all scramble to see that new bicycle, that new scooter. It was always exciting to be a recipient of that last unopened gift. And it highlighted pretty profoundly the reality that we all always wanted a little more. But what about New Year's? Did you or are you going to make any New Year's resolutions? Well, the statistics, though they vary somewhat, which is really handy because then you can make any point you want, but they show that somewhere between 35 and 45 percent of Americans make New Year's resolutions. They also show that less than 8 percent of people of these resolutions actually last. But year after year, we continue to make these promises to ourselves. 
this is going to be the year that we'll lose 15 pounds or run a marathon or actually start savings. We plan our New Year's resolutions because, well, honestly, we always want just a little more. So I, bring, I began this sermon with this dual intro, which they tell you in seminary not to do, because both of these scenarios, while they point to the same truth, that desire for another gift, that desire for a little more, they, they reveal that same need, that same problem, that we are often unsatisfied. But they differ greatly on how that need is fulfilled. You see, with Christmas, we desire a perfect gift to fill that need or that want. While at New Year's, we resolve to perfect some defect, some need, some want. Put it, put it another way. At Christmas, we rely on the gift giver to supply our needs, while at New Year's, we rely on ourselves to work out that need. Now, perhaps I, I'm guilty of over-spiritualizing one and trivializing the other, but if so, I don't think by much. If we can accept gifts at Christmas, if we're grateful to receive items that, honestly, we really don't deserve, why is it that most of the year, as Americans and even as American Christians, we rely on ourselves to get what we want or what we think we need? Whether we want to lose a few pounds, whether we want to improve a relationship, whether we want to embrace some leadership trait or quit some annoying or unhealthy habit. There is an entire row or more of self-help books, if bookstores still have books, written for you to embrace. There are seven simple steps. There's a money-backed guarantee. And most of the year, we really do think that if we work hard enough, if we're just determined enough, if we set our mind to it, we can do whatever we want to. That's a line we've been fed again and again. And the Apostle James has a word for us if we have that mindset this morning. He's going to show us that because God is sovereign, and because, as Hodges put it, he's involved in a divine work in our lives, we must learn to accept his sovereignty. We must learn to accept his will as the gift that it is. And the good news is we're going to be able to because he's making us new in this new year. So how do we learn to accept God's sovereignty? How do we learn to accept his will? The first step is to realize our own lack of control begin to stop living in our own strength. So you want to take a look at this passage in James this morning because you need to see if it applies to you. It, it might not. And James invites us all for a moment of reflection. You can see that in his intro. He says, come now, 
you who say. It's an invitation. Once you're in, once you're ready to listen, you can hear if this message applies to you. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Is that you? You know, James very or very intentionally did not include the name of the town. Because if he did, people would say, well, I'm not from that town, so this doesn't apply to me. He would just give us one more reason to dismiss this passage as irrelevant to us. We would probably agree that it's applicable to some. We know someone who lives like this, who arrogantly thinks that they control their own future, that they think they actually can live or go to such and such a town, spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But that's, that's not me. I really hope I don't move anywhere anytime soon. And I'm not involved in trade. And with three kids in college, breaking even is my goal, not, not making a profit. So it's pretty easy to dismiss this passage. And then I begin to think about my own resolutions. Uh, My ministry plans at the chapel, our summer plans of travel that are beginning to take shape, and I begin to feel just a little uncomfortable. And then I think back into the years and the times when I was determined to eradicate a debt or bring my run times down to a certain level, and I begin to sound a bit like, James's intended audience. Do you? What about your more nobler goals? My more nobler goals of improving my marriage, of living healthy, or quitting some bad or annoying habit. Surely those are okay, you may be wondering. And the answer James gives us in verse 15. You see, it's not the goals he is cautioning us against. It's goals without God. It's this presumptive attitude that we bring into our everyday life that he's warning us against. It's the thought that we've been inundated with time and time again that you can do anything you put your mind to. Well, with no apologies to self-help authors or, or gurus or life coaches, I'm here to say, no, you can't. And frankly, it's spiritually dangerous for you to think otherwise. Now, I'll be quick to say with God, nothing is impossible. And so if it's his plan for you to be an astronaut, then you will be one. That's clear enough. But have you laid out your plans before the Lord? Or even better, has he laid his plans on your heart? That divine work that he's involved in? These plans are a gift from God. Are they a gift from God? Or are your plans just something you are determined to do? We've been so conditioned by our culture to live, to think, to plan, to dream, to act in our own strength. We've been told again and again that with preparation and determination, nothing is impossible. And so we approach the end of the year or the end of a project or hit just some reflection point. And if we're thoughtful, 
we set new goals for ourselves. And that new goal is very likely, it's quite possibly, and it's sadly often in our own strength, with only our capacities, our talents, our desires, and our determination in mind. It's another goal without God. James presses us into further reflection. He says, you do this, and you don't even know what tomorrow brings. How true is that? Have you ever been surprised by a day? Honestly, we don't even know what the next 10 minutes really holds. I hope to still be preaching. And we see this all the time, day after day, but I don't think it really sinks in. Think about sports. We watch a game, and we're often surprised by a play. There's a turnover. There's some spectacular play that changes the momentum, changes the entire game. There might be a bad call that changes the outcome of a game. It might change the outcome of an entire season. And all these things that surprise us, they should drive us into a deeper dependency on the reality and truth of God's sovereignty. He is the great gift giver, and yet so often it doesn't. We just think that if we prepare more, or if we're more determined, then we can pull it off. James's next question should certainly stop us in our tracks. He asks, what is your life? It's a profound philosophical question. It's a question that deserves much consideration. And yet, if I would pause and allow you time for reflection right now, I might be doing an injustice to the text because James answers his own question before we even have a moment to formulate a lofty or grandiose reply. Now, I'm not pretending to do much ironing in the house. Don't hear that. That honor lies elsewhere. But from time to time, I do iron. And when I do, I'm usually accused by some in the family of getting everyone around me wet with a spray bottle. I admit to that. However, while I've been playing with a spray bottle, I noticed something very dramatic. I practiced this yesterday to make sure it was really true. If you take your spray bottle and you find a window where the light is streaming in full and strong and you hold up the spray bottle and give it a good squirt, you'll see 10,000 micro droplets of water in a glorious mist. No, I didn't stop to count them. And micro droplets is my own term and not some technical uh, term for you engineers out there. I just wanted to say that in the time it took me to give that disclaimer, the mist was gone. So you don't do much ironing either? Well, it's winter morning, and you can see your breath, and that's always an exciting time. And so you breathe deeply, and you launch out purposely a grand fog, and it's gone. What is your life? James says it's like a micro-mist. It's like a fleeting breath on a cold winter's day. In one instant, it is gloriously formed, and in the next, gone. Completely and utterly vanished. James 
doesn't remind us of this stark truth to discourage us. Quite the contrary. He wants to remind us of a more glorious reality, that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that God's involved in, as Hodges says, this divine work, that God has, as the Westminster divine reminded us, that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And so with that in mind, we must pause in our thinking. We must say with our heart, if the Lord wills, if the Lord wills, I shall do such and such. Now these aren't just words to say. Heaven forbid that kind of thoughtless repetition. But they are a truth that should permeate our plans. It is a reality which we must reflect upon in our hearts and in our minds. And if that reality works its way out into our speech from time to time, so much the better. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And God's sovereignty doesn't negate our involvement. We are still called to do, I love how the text puts it, we are still called to do this or that. It's just that we must learn to accept and rely upon God's gifts to show us what this or that ought to be. So here's the good news. What's new in the new year? You are. And there's still something unopened under the tree. And that's the giftedness that God is determined to work in your life this year. It's not the Lord's intention that you'll live idly waiting for him to work out his will in your life and all around you. Quite the contrary. He wants you involved in planning and in considering and in acting, just doing so with the genuine spirit of, if the Lord wills and we live, we shall do this or that. God has promised involvement in your life. He's declared in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away, the new has come. I was intrigued by this idea of making us new. And so I did a little search in the scripture to find out what words are paired up with the word new. I found some fun ones. There's several that you probably know or can think of. There's new growth. There's the new moon. There's the new thing. God promises to give us a new heart. He's given us a new covenant. And I'm going to spend a brief moment speaking about four things that he's promised to make new for us in this new year. And again, as you think about this, I want you to remember that God has also promised that if he has begun a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. So in no particular order, well, that's probably not true. God is giving us new wine. I did pick that one first because I figured, you know, it's New Year's Day. Some of us may have enjoyed some uh, celebratory beverages last night. And so one of the things, 40 times in the scriptures, you see the phrase new wine occurs. 
And when we see it in there, it's a term that often signifies a blessing that God has given. Deuteronomy 7, verses 11 to 13, speaks of God as this covenant-keeping God. And he's charging us to be covenant-keeping ourselves. And he says, when you do that, when you keep my covenant, you will see me bless you. And that term of his love and his blessing is expressed in the term the new wine. New wine also expresses or symbolizes generosity, and even particularly generosity to the Lord's work. Deuteronomy 18.4 says, You shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, and your oil, the first shearing of your sheep. First in our thoughts, generosity to the Lord's work. 2 Chronicles 31.5, as soon as the order spread, the sons of Israel provided in abundance the first fruits of grain, the new wine, the oil, the honey, and all the produce of the field. You probably don't want to put that in the offering plate necessarily, but they brought in abundantly the tithe of all. New wine. Very often the two are interconnected. There's this idea, Proverbs 3.10 speaks to it, so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The application for us is as you realize that God is the source of your blessing, let that cultivate into a spirit of thoughtful generosity. God has lavished you with his blessings. Lavish his work as well. New wine, new song. That's a pairing that occurs about at least nine times, at least in the translation that I looked at. And I thought I'd include that because you've just gone through a series in which you were looking at songs that made your soul sing for Advent. And if by any chance you're still wondering what there might be to sing about, Take another look at your Lord. Psalm 96 tells us that we are to sing a new song. We are to tell of his salvation. We are to sing of his marvelous works among the peoples. And even better, Psalm 40 tells us that it is God who puts this new song on our lips. Think of that for a minute. God is desiring a change in your life. He's giving you a new song, and he's literally giving you that that you need. He is the great gift giver. He is the Lord who desires to be in our plans and in our thoughts. New wine, new song, a new commandment. No doubt you are familiar with our Lord Jesus when he declared in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. John uses this concept in his letters, and he plays with this idea, and then in 2 John he explains, it's not as though I was writing a new commandment, but one we've had from the beginning, that we love one another. The application for each of us here in this new year's is that we need to learn how to love one another. And to do that, we need to realize that you or we are the church. The church is not the building that you plan 
if the Lord wills, to build. In fact, I was thinking that that might be a good example, and I don't want to really open a can of worms or if this is a difficult thing to talk about. But it is a good example of man's lack of control and lack of power. It seems to me, at least, that the timeline for the building of the new church has, at a minimum, been pushed back or delayed, or at least it's longer than I expected as someone sitting in the seat. You all have planned and you've executed due diligence and you've tried to understand and you've laid it before the Lord and you're finding you're waiting upon the Lord. And that's a fine thing. In his perfect time, he will bring it about. But remember this. This construction project is not building a church. It is simply creating a space beautiful and functional for the church to meet in, to worship in, to fellowship in, to love one another in. That you improve your love to one another this year is of profound importance because to love your brothers and sisters in Christ is to share the gospel with the world. Jesus says it like this, By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so, love each other well. And you already do that very well. Just as a moment of personal privilege, my wife and I were the recipients of your love this fall, and we thank you very much for that. Well, how is any of this possible? The answer is our only hope in accomplishing this goal or any other of our noble resolutions is because God has also promised to give us the gift of new strength. He's involved in a work in your life. And we know from the scriptures that those who wait on the Lord will gain new strength. Isaiah reminds us of that, that the Lord gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. And a couple verses later in that classic passage of Isaiah 40, 31, they will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And the very next verse, Isaiah 41, 1, Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. Then let them come forward. Then let them speak. Then let us come together for judgment. I want to close by reading Proverbs chapter 16, verses 1 uh, to the beginning of verse 4. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eye. But the Lord weighs the spirit. Commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose. This passage rightly highlights God's sovereignty over our plans and actions. And so it's a new year. 
And maybe your New Year's resolution could be to live like it's Christmas all year long. That is, with a keen and ready expectation that God, the great gift giver, that God, the one involved in a divine work in your life, will supply both the goals and the gifts to live for his glory. What's new in a new year? Well, if you know our Lord Jesus Christ, you are. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that day when you will make all things new. When we will see you face to face. And you will look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been the good and faithful servant. Father, until that day, we ask that we would be attuned to the new work that you're doing in our lives. That we wouldn't become frustrated with our own sin, but rather we would constantly just lay it before you. And Father, that we would watch you and rejoice that you're working that work in our lives. Father, thank you again for promising to be faithful, to complete that work. And Lord, remind us again that you are the great gift giver, that you supply all of our needs that you have not only forgiven us of our sins, but you have given us a purpose in life, and you equip us to that purpose. Father, teach us to rejoice and to live for your glory out of response for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.